Misadventures in Small Business share stories that will involve someone doing something stupid or embarrassing or potentially just plain ballsy. Today's story isn't about me, but actually about my father. Misadventures in Small Business number 14. Dad almost gets deported from Canada. In the mid-70s, my father got involved with cash registers. Specifically, he sold data terminal systems cash registers in Rochester, New York, for a man who had the local dealership for DTS. Now, I can claim all day long that my father is one of the best salesmen in the world, but I can back this up by saying that he and my mother got a free week-long trip to Rome in 1979 as he outsold all other DTS salesmen in the country the previous year. At one point in time, DTS commanded about an 80% market share in the U.S. As a pioneer in the electronic cash register game, they brought many innovations impossible with older NCR mechanical registers, automatic tax calculations, the ability to see combined sales numbers from multiple registers such as grocery stores, and even remote polling from multi-store locations via early modems. The interconnectivity within a single store was accomplished via IRC, or Inter-Register Communication, basically a very primitive LAN using standard four-pronged phone jacks and basic telephone cabling. The remote data polling could take all night to pull data from 10 to 20 stores and was very temperamental with the 1200 baud modems. As I was in grade school at the time, I have no idea if his boss wanted to sell his dealership or was squeezed by the manufacturers happened sometimes. Anyway, another dealer from Albany or Schenectady that was already in three or four cities bought Jim's territory in 1980. For whatever reason, Jim was smart enough to include a provision in the sales contract that stated the new guys had to keep my father for no less than a year. Any casual observer would safely surmise that a new company would have no reason to toss the top salesmen in the entire country to the curb with or without an agreement in place. That doesn't take into account either human nature or my father's personality quirks slash flaws. Again, I was in grade school at the time, so I am guessing on some details here. I have met and worked under some of those corporate types during my lifetime, which is why I always preferred smaller companies or self-employment myself. I can only imagine, combined with memories of some comments at the time, that there was a sales manager micromanaging a sales superstar, one of those unimaginative types that holds process and procedure in higher regard than results. Probably the kind of guy that thinks developing and instituting 20 different forms to be filled out every week by his salespeople justifies his inflated salary and overrides on their sales. My father didn't invent profanity, but he sure tried to perfect it during his lifetime, which is one of the traits I've tried 51 years to keep alive myself. Many smart, productive people have to answer to idiots. Some are great at putting on the wig and taking it. Others are too stiff-necked to be made someone's prison bitch. In some ways, I almost envy the weak people that can take that kind of soul-crushing domination. I'll never respect them, but I do envy people that will go along with 50 shades of stupid just to keep a steady paycheck coming in. I guess yes man sounds a little more diplomatic than willing prison bitch, 
but whatever, just trying to keep it real. Initially, my father was going to work 60 miles away in Buffalo, which wasn't the end of the world. I believe the Buffalo DTS dealer was in talks with the Toronto dealer for acquisition. Somehow, Buffalo got sold to the Albany slash Rochester guys that had just squeezed my father out, so it was off the table. He eventually went to work in Toronto. I don't know what exactly played out in Toronto, but within a few years, he started his own company with a partner. Besides the recurring revenue from the service contracts on DTS cash registers, he was selling refurbished registers and even doing some computer consulting. At their height, I believe they had 12 employees. I'm not sure why the partnership failed, but it did within two or three years. Not only did my father's partner dime him out to Revenue Canada for some overdue taxes, he was even helpful enough to supply the bank name and account number to the tax man. Besides getting him hemmed up with tax bureaucrats, his partner also tried to get him deported by Immigration Canada. Long term, the tax story wasn't even that bad as my father figured out that there was a tax credit available because he was employing several computer programmers and qualified for a program that rewarded employers dealing with creating and training people for high-tech jobs. Initially, it was definitely a setback as his primary business account got attached. Now, the Immigration Canada story had a quick, happy resolution. My father had an appointment to meet with an immigration official. He drove to the appointment but tucked his car keys under the front bumper in case he got deported that day. Someone else could at least recover his van. He went into the appointment half expecting to get kicked out of Canada. His biggest ace was the fact that he had employees, which he used during his hearing. He said, if you want to deport me, that's fine, but you'll have 10 Canadians out of work. Thankfully, the agent, or committee, saw the logic in this point and concluded the appointment with, have a nice day, Mr. Clark, and dropped the entire case. There were tedious, labor-intensive segments of the business that didn't interest my father, although they were the source of all the steady money that kept people paid and the lights on. You can't have service contract revenue without service tax, vehicles, etc. He would have been way better off with someone handling that side of the business so that he could be free to sell, consult, and program, which were the areas where he excelled. He had a programming project for Molson that took several months. For whatever reason, the manager wasn't happy and withheld payment. As I recently had a battalion commander in the Army Reserve who writes code in the civilian world, I have a better understanding of how some of these projects go, too. A lot of times there are many, many changes, and whoever's cutting the check is annoyed that the project has now gone over budget because somebody added to the scope of work and created a whole bunch of wasted billable time. Quite a few months or even a year later, with an attorney, he recovered $50,000 for his earlier work. He had to lay out a bit of money making the drive up north to Barrie, where Molson was, but I'm uncertain if he also spent money on lodging as he eventually lived in Guelph, which was even farther from Barrie. As this was either 1986 or 1987, there was no real interweb yet, no remoting in. I can only imagine if any work was done off-site that it required quite a few floppy disks. 
Putting all your eggs in one basket and then getting stiffed on payment, even temporarily, should be a life lesson for all of us. Steady, low-margin money from multiple sources looks more appealing to me, for sure. With that stability, add the big creative projects that provide both financial windfalls and the gratifying creative problem-solving. Eventually, he had no viable business in Toronto and came back to Rochester. Budgeting and accounts payable were definitely not his thing. I got to see the same scenario play out firsthand in Rochester a few years later, but that's a story for another misadventure. Until the next misadventure, remember, to make more than you take when you move to a foreign country illegally and you'll be untouchable.